I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I wanted to start by congratulating Verso on, on publishing this book it's an, and, and Douglas on writing it. Um, both things involve a lot of labor and imagination. It's, a, it's an excellent book. It's an important book. And above all, it's a timely book. And I don't just mean because it's, uh, this is the 4th of August. Um, so this really is an extremely resonant anniversary. But it's not just because of the anniversary that this is a timely book. It's also because recent months, I think in particular this year, the anniversary year, has seen the resurgence of what I think you could describe as a kind of jingo narrative of Britain's road to war in 1914. And I'm thinking in particular of interventions from the political sphere of Boris Johnson's um, famous, uh, we, we, of course we all love Boris, um, more or less, but... Um, <laughs> Oh, good. We've got some hisses. Excellent. Um, but, but anyway, the point is um, that you know, Boris weighed into this, uh, it weighed into this contest and made the point that it was quite clear why Britain went to war. It had to go to war. It was dealing with a perfidious, um, murderous enemy. Um, we've had, um, and Boris isn't the only one, a kind of wave of, of uh, attempts to, uh, to remove the futility and pathos from the popular memory of Britain's war to restore a sense of, of victory. The war was a worthwhile struggle, that it was a just war and a, and a politically legitimate one. And what's interesting about these efforts to rehabilitate the First World War in British national memory is how unusual this shift in tone is in the broader European context. There is no parallel for this um, nationalist move in memory of the war in France, for example, which has remained um, very much committed to a, a memory of this war which is focused on pathos and on the sense of the, the, the squandering of lives, uh, a, a mode of memory which is Europeanizable. It's one that can be shared with other European states. The Germans are, are interesting because the Germans, because Berlin, basically out of a sense of sort of paralysis and embarrassment about the meaning of 1914, effectively made no plans for the anniversary at all. But the move to a sort of return, if you like, to a a narrative which in some ways recalls the narrative of the war itself, the narratives of the war itself, um, is, stands out in the European context. It's very much a, a phenomenon that's taken place in, in this country and in London in particular, uh, and is interesting for that reason. Okay, well, what is Douglas doing in this book? Well, he's challenging a received point of view, a received opinion. And this received opinion has, it seems to me, three chief points. One can sum it up in, in three chief points. The first is that Britain was wholly on the right uh, in entering the war of 1914 and that she did all she could to avert war. I mean, Britain is the one country that seeks to maintain the peace and is forced into war by an extremely violent and, um, and, and aggressive enemy, Germany, namely. Secondly, 
that Britain's choice for war was not made until the 4th of August, when Britain was forced into war by German aggression against Belgium. So in other words, Britain's um, decision for war is motivated by an act of appalling aggression, a violation of Belgian uh, neutrality. And the third point in the received, this received opinion, which has recently been, as I say, reinforced, is that the decision for war in Britain was almost universally supported, that those who resisted it were a tiny rump of pacifists and ne'er-do-wells and malcontents, misfits. Now, in this book, Douglas Newton offers uh, a very different view. He challenges all three points and many others besides. I mean, this is, it's a very rather unsettling and disturbing portrait of a political elite on the brink of war. But I want to really focus my comments on what he's done on these three points. It's a very reduced uh, version of what he's done, but it just helps for the sake of clarity. The first point is, uh, that he makes is that Britain was not a neutral bystander. Britain was not the state whose credo was the maintenance of peace at all costs until, uh, forced by the moral atrocity of the violation of Belgian neutrality, Britain had no choice but to enter the war. The, the reality is rather different. Uh, namely that Britain was a, a strong supporter of the Entente powers of France and Russia from a good time before the outbreak of the war itself. How far one wants to extend this interpretation back is a matter of, uh, of, of debate, but nevertheless the point is that Britain is already a determined supporter of the Entente. By Britain we mean, of course, a coterie of ministers around Edward Grey, the, the Foreign Secretary. And in making this point, uh, Douglas follows, or he's done a lot of research of his own, and the book is full of original observations, but there's an important pioneer that we should mention here, and that is um, a professor of history at the University of Leeds, Keith Wilson, who is also very important for my own work and for that of other colleagues I know, uh, who wrote, who's written a whole series of articles and books, the, the best known one, I think, the best one also is The Politics of the Entente, where Keith Wilson made this point, that from an early stage, a group of ministers in Britain from 1906 onwards constructs the world, constructs their view of the world around a, a pointed hostility to Berlin, a paranoia about Berlin's objectives. This is the so-called grey group. So drawing on this and greatly expanding um, Keith Wilson's arguments, uh, Douglas constructs a very different view of, how, of the background to Britain's decision for war in 1914. The second point is that Britain was not forced to make its decision by the invasion of Belgium, by the violation of Belgian neutrality um, by Germany. Now, in making this point, Douglas is not in any way diminishing the horror of the violation of Belgian neutrality by, by the German army. He doesn't downplay the, the seriousness of that breach of international law, but he's simply making the point that this was not the reason why Britain entered the war. The British decision for war emerged from the commitment to France, the commitment to the, uh, to the Entente with France, not from concern about Belgian neutrality. And we could come back to that in discussion if you wish to, if you, if you wish to bring that up later. And what we find in, in uh, Douglas's narrative is very early assurances to France of British support. And um, these assurances are, of course, passed on to Benkendorf, the Russian ambassador in London, so that, as Douglas points out, these assurances, early assurances of support for France, go on to reinforce the determination in Russia to meet the challenge to Serbia by Austria with a Russian mobilization. So, in other words, British actions are much more proactive, much more influential in the chain of European events that bring this war about. It's not the case, it's simply not the case that Britain is a bystander until the 4th of August, and then, at the last moment, pressed by force majeure, enters the war with no alternative. 
And one could push this argument even further back to the December of 1912, where we find the British warning the Germans that uh, in the event that there is a quarrel in the Balkans involving perhaps Serbia and Austria, it doesn't matter to the British who starts this quarrel. And should it be the case that Russia might feel obliged to intervene in this quarrel against Austria-Hungary, even though Russia itself is not under attack, and France should then feel obliged to support Russia and Germany to support Austria, that should that happen, Britain will fight on the side of the Entente. This is a promise that's already made, a warning that's issued to the Germans, and a promise that's made to Cambon, the French ambassador in London, in December 1912. So this is a, a deep and already fairly established commitment on Britain's side. That's the, the second point. The third point is that the decision made to intervene in this war was not universally popular. On the contrary, and this is where I think the book is particularly unsettling and very texted in its analysis, this decision for intervention split the government. It almost broke the Liberal government. Uh, it was not supported by a majority of the Liberal Party, not by a majority of the Cabinet Ministers. Um, Douglas's calculation is that, at the very least, 11 of the 19 Ministers of Cabinet supported an intervention right up until the last moment. And so what follows from this is that the country was effectively, this was not a, a sort of union sacrée, which entered the war um, in a state of national unanimity, but rather that the country, as he argues, was, this is his, his verb, was bounced into war. Is that a contemporary term? Yes, it I was, think so. It was definitely. a contemporary term, yep, yeah. They used it, was, it. it was bounced into war um, on the basis of a not entirely true account given to the public of the reasons and motivations for intervention. And what's very striking, for example, if we look at Gray's account of why Britain has to go to war on the 3rd and then on the 4th before the House of Commons of August, um, very little, uh, well, no mention is made whatsoever of the fact that this war is actually beginning with a Russian decision to mobilize against Austria on account of Austria's punitive expedition, expedition against Serbia. In fact, the whole thing is constructed as a response to Belgian neutrality. And I want to quote from Douglas's book, Throughout this crisis, the cabinet's pro-entente leaders were manipulative and deceptive. They made crucial decisions outside the cabinet, which steered the neutralist majority towards war. There was no democratic decision for war. Now, anyone who feels reminded in a disturbing way of more recent re resonances from the more recent past, well, I make no, uh, and I'm sure Douglas makes no apology for those, um, that sense of elise, unease. And at the center of the um, new, of the sort of jingo narrative of, of 2014, is, of course, the idea that what really matters in the outbreak of this war is, is something one could sum up as German perfidy. And Douglas makes the point that German perfidy has done a lot of interpretative work for the Jingo school. What German perfidy allows us to do is, first of all, completely to conceal the role of the Eastern powers in the outbreak of this war. The fact that this war began in the east of Europe, in particular on the Balkan Peninsula. But if we take the German perfidy view and focus on the 4th of August and the violation of Belgian neutrality, we wind up with a story which leaves the east and the southeast of Europe completely out of view and obscures the complexity of how this war came about. German perfidy could be relied upon, he put it, to eclipse the presence in all of these calculations of reactionary Russia. With all eyes focused on the battles to throw back German militarism in the west, liberals could ignore the east. So, in other words, I think this is a really important book. It's a really important corrective to... Um, a view of 1914 which has become dominant in press coverage uh, during the, this la these last six months. 
Um, it's a very opportune book. And I want to close by uh, reassuring you that this is not just a piece. I mean, Douglas is from Australia. I'm from Australia, too. Um, it's not a piece of Australian pommy bashing. And it's true that pommy bashing is a popular sport in parts of the Australian political elite, but it's not something I'm interested in doing, and I don't think Douglas is either. He's just written a book. Astonishingly, he's, been, he's written this book at the same time as he wrote this book. I don't know how he managed that. But this book uh, offers an excoriating critique of the Australian government's rush to war. So he's, a, he's an equal opportunity critic, let's put it that way. Um, so at this point, I'd like to hand over the microphone to Douglas to say a few words about what he's been doing, and then we'll, I'll ask a few questions, and then we can open the floor. Thank you so much, Christopher. Uh, thank you all for coming on this very poignant evening. Perhaps you would have preferred to have been alone with your thoughts and think of that great crowd of ghosts behind us and the war that touched your family and mine. So uh, thank you for the vote of confidence in coming tonight. And thank you for Verso for producing the book, of course, and for the bookshop for allowing us to speak tonight. I'm not going to take up too much time. I thought, for those of you who haven't read the book, that's probably almost everyone in the room, uh, I would try and capture in about two and a half pages the essential six hard truths about this war from the British perspective. Let me start, though, with the heartwarming morality tale that has been sold to us for uh, so long now. When many people think of uh, Britain's choice for war in 1914, uh, that fatalism descends. They pull up the doona of fatalism and get on with the war. They muttered to themselves because they've been told there was no alternative, it couldn't have been better, peace was finished. And they imagined that Britain did all she could to avert the war and that her politicians were so decently reluctant to enter it. Until the last moment, and then it was a response to German aggression against Belgium a hundred years ago today, and Britain had to. She stood up for democracy against despotism. Now, that tale scarcely matches the evidence. Britain's war makers, and they did exist even here, forced the pace of events. Britain's war makers jockeyed the cabinet, Earl Beecham's word, blindsided the parliament, and rushed to a premature choice for war two days before Belgium's invasion. Let me run through the, the six hard truths. Here's the first that Britain's decision-makers frog-marched events. Some of you might remember Churchill's favourite phrase, the march of events will be irresistible, and all the more so if you frog-march them. And he did, and others too. Britain's leaders did very little to restrain Russia or France. Britain took provocative actions herself early in the crisis. Let me highlight a few. On Sunday, 26 July, the fleet was kept concentrated and we know this encouraged Russian and French hardliners. On Tuesday, 28 July, the fleet was ordered to war stations, even before news of a Balkan war. The weapons of mass destruction were deployed for war. On Wednesday, 29 July, the warning telegram was sent across the empire, unleashing the passions of war in far-off exotic places like Australia. Two days before the comparable German proclamation of a danger of threatening war state. Friday, 31 July, the Germans issued their proclamation. Second hard truth. The interventionist minority in Asquith's cabinet jockeyed the neutralist majority. The cabinet was confronted with a series of fait accompli. 
the naval moves that I've just described, the shunning of all negotiations on neutrality, the army mobilisation, the calling out of the naval reserve, the completion of naval mobilisation, all those decisions were taken between cabinets and cabinet then confronted with a done deed. These things were done by the inner executive, the Asquith clique. Third hard truth. There were, of course, cheerleaders clamouring for war. These people were very active in London. There was a self-styled pogrom raised by Sir Henry Wilson to orchestrate pressure upon the liberal wobblers, as they, of course, constructed them. Influential men in government and in the press, Tory politicians, linked with the French and Russian embassies, all barracked for instant British intervention and, indeed, synchronised mobilisation. You find that argument in the British Tory press from the first day of the week, from Monday, 27 July. Irrespective of Belgium, we must fly to the assistance of Russia, even if Russia is the first to provoke war. Tory leaders urged, clearly, a war of entente solidarity in their two letters that were read to the Cabinet Belgium is not essential, especially in the second letter signed by the two leaders, uh, Bonalore and Lansdowne. Fourth hard truth. This is not a triumph for democracy. Democracy in this process is sidestepped. Asquith and Gray deliberately blindside, even hoodwink, the Cabinet and the Parliament. The British Parliament's in session across that week, beginning Monday 27 July. It learns almost nothing of British policy, until Monday, 3 August. The leaders, Asquith, Gray, fostered the impression that, in any case, if Britain opted for war, it would be a limited war, a naval war only, a rich man's war. We have the weapons of mass destruction. We shall deploy the navy. Only a few thousand sailors' lives will be threatened. No havoc of a prolonged land war. When the die was cast... 3 August, Gray announces his policy. Asquith seeks instantly to squash all parliamentary debate. Only the radical on his feet, Philip Murrell, secures a debate that evening, 100 years ago, right now, in the House of Commons, secured almost by chance by a Speaker's ruling that we could have perhaps an adjournment debate on whether Britain enters the war. Then, when it's all over, on 6 August, the government gave MPs the famous white paper, diplomatic correspondence respecting the European crisis, a great disgorging of diplomatic secrets, it seemed, 159 documents exposed to the MPs who are within hours to debate the war credit and indeed will support it. That white paper proves to be a very dodgy dossier indeed. Let me highlight this fact. There are 11 telegrams reproduced from George Buchanan in Petersburg. Ten of them are paraphrased and trimmed. What is sanitised out of them? That Russia is twisting arms, that Maurice Paleologue in Petersburg is twisting arms, that Britain is being warned from the very beginning that if she deserts her allies, for they are allies so far as France and Russia are concerned, if she deserts them, the British Empire will be indefensible. And George Buchanan is barracking that way too. All those embarrassing signs of Russian pressure are removed and then the parliament is asked to vote yay or nay to a war credit. 
Fifth hard truth. Britain's choice for war clearly, and I'm using my words very carefully here, choice for war, commitment to war, if war erupts, is made on Sunday, the 2nd of August. It is clearly the cabinet that agrees to give France a pledge of naval support. If the German fleet comes into the channel, that is the moment when the British cabinet, by a very slender vote, possibly one, according to Churchill's revelations to Wilfred Blunt, possibly by one, that Britain will fight if war erupts on the side of her entente partners. The pledge almost wrecks the cabinet. So appalled are four neutralist ministers at their own government's haste, at their own government's handling of the crisis, they resign by letter overnight, Sunday, 2nd August, and Monday morning, 3 August. All the textbooks that say four cabinet ministers resigned in protest at Britain entering the war get it wrong. The resignations come before that. They are not saying we don't care for Belgium. We say we should stand aside and let the Germans take Belgium. That is, again, to misjudge the timing here. The revolt in the cabinet is against a decision made on 2nd August. And let me stress, nowhere else does this happen in Europe. No council of ministers, nowhere else does a minister with the hot breath of war on his face say, I'm so appalled by my government's handling of this crisis, I'm walking. I'm laying down my seals of office, I'm losing my salary, I can't stand it. Only in London does this happen. And yet, if we read the Jingo nationalist version, Britain is standing before a white sheet. She is the most innocent of nations, her government the most reluctant to enter war. Why then are four of her cabinet ministers resigning overnight, Sunday 2nd and uh, Monday 3 August? Lastly, I'm not going to detain you a minute longer. Finally, let us recognise on this day, as those members of the House of Commons, all 17 members, urged Britain not to rush to a decision but to continue to negotiate war. Let us note there are brave men and women, and given very little time, who mobilise all their efforts in a very short space of time to keep Britain out. A powerful movement of resistance. It doesn't collapse overnight. How could it have? This has been a critique of Entente foreign policy that has been raging uh, literally since the uh, convention with Russia in 1907. What happens? Inside the cabinet in the Liberal Party, the call for neutrality undoubtedly had the support of the majority at the beginning of this crisis. Beyond the ranks of Liberals, it was strong among a wide circle of internationalists, socialists, radicals, intellectuals, feminists, suffragists, peace activists of all kinds, pacifists and internationally minded Christians. They were mobilising over that weekend too. Hence the vast demonstration in Trafalgar Square on the afternoon of Sunday, 2nd August. The defeat of this movement testifies not to the hopelessness of their cause, but to the rapidity of the crisis. The warmongers didn't linger as they did in 1911, a crisis beginning in July, resolved in November. Think of the situation. Asquith announces July 31, Friday, 5 o'clock, general Russian mobilisation by Tuesday. It's all over. That is how rapid the crisis is in 1914. Let me stress finally, the demand then for neutrality is not a simple demand about 4 August. It is a demand that Britain should pursue active 
credible, neutral mediation throughout the crisis. It was a demand for an effective, credible neutrality based on a determination to talk through and avoid the dynamite. That was never attempted. That might have averted the war. Well, I think you've, you've had a sort of foretaste of the, of the passion with which Douglas Newton writes. Um, and the book is written, it is incredibly readable. It's like a thriller. I mean, it moves from day to day. It's a highly textured account, which is, it really does take you into the, those, those extremely important hours when these decisions of world historical importance were made in London as, as across Europe. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. The first was, Britain's foreign secretary at this time, Edward Gray, who's been in office since, I think, is it January 1906? He's been in office for some time. December 05. Um, December 05. December 05. What's your assessment of him? I mean, Gray's a fascinating figure to watch during this crisis. And there's, there's a moment towards the end of July when it seems that Gray himself is having doubts about the government's policy when he gets the first wind of Russian mobilization measures. Um, he, he has a sort of crisis of confidence in his own policy. He, he tells Combon, the French ambassador in London, look, um, there must be some way out of this. Uh, why doesn't France remain neutral? We'll assure the Germans that if France remains neutral and we remain neutral, we'll get an assurance from them that they won't attack France. Uh, and he goes so far as actually to ask Lichnowsky, the German ambassador, whether this might be possible. This involves urging France to drop its relationship with Russia and allow the Germans to settle their war with Russia, or the Russians to settle their war with Austria and Germany, uh, in the East, with no Western involvement. An extraordinary turnabout on his pro-ententist policy up until that point. And then the next day, uh, he's called back to order. I mean, he gets a very uh, rather bruising letter from uh, from Barty in, in Paris, who says, yes. this is just absolutely absurd. What are you asking the French to do? You must be crazy. Uh, and then he, 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 gets, he, get, he sort of covers himself and goes back to his ententist position. Is Gray losing the plot, or what's going on? Well, let, let me come directly to the incident that uh, Chris reminds us of. Uh, a chapter in my book is called Kite Flying. And some of you who have seen 37 Days will remember, uh, I found it remarkable, that this is at last being placed in the public domain. That is, for a period of about eight hours, on Saturday the 1st of August, Gray appears to explore the possibility of confining the war to the east, of cutting the Russians adrift and asking the French if they couldn't put some pressure on Russia. Um, as you described it, when Bertie writes to him from Paris saying, are you serious? Do you really wish me to ask the French if they are committed to the Russians? That is embarrassing for him. But over billiards at Brooks, even more embarrassing, Gray is summoned to the palace. For, of course, the Germans have responded to the uh, messages from Lichnowsky, uh, and it appears that, uh, indeed, Britain is offering yep, to guarantee French neutrality in the West and Britain, too, will stay out of the war. We could confine the war in the East. At Buckingham Palace, Gray has asked, what on earth is happening? I have received this cable from the Kaiser, willingly accepting this. And we now know, indeed, the Germans call off the occupation of Luxembourg. There was a real possibility there. Gray then instantly abandons it, embarrassed in front of his king, and on the back of an envelope, offers to write a cable back to the Kaiser, explaining it, was all a misunderstanding. Mr. Lick, Max Lichnowsky must have misunderstood something I said. Now, it's a, a marvellous bump in the story against those who believe that Germany is absolutely committed to a war for uh, hegemony in Europe 
and nothing will dissuade her. Here, it, it appeared uh, half the war was about to be abandoned. Now, let me come more generally to Gray. However, we know that he has years invested in absolute support to the Entente and has embarrassed other members of the Foreign Office and the Diplomatic Service in that, uh, in that uh, role. I sat uh, for a day or two reading Frank Lassell's papers in the uh, British Museum. Frank Lassell's is the German ambassador who precedes uh, Sir Edward Gershon. Uh, Lassell's believed in reconciliation with Germany. He did not believe that uh, Germany was the green room for the Nazi empire to come. Uh, he certainly believed that it was possible uh, for Britain to have a different policy than underwriting French and Russian imperialism whenever it came under a threat. Lascelles, however, was uh, informed by Gray. This is in 1907, over the uh, famous uh, Kaiser visit to Britain, that the crucial thing was that the French and Russians not believe for a moment that we have any intention of departing by a hair's breadth from our policy of absolute loyalty to the Entente. Now, I think the, uh, one of the lessons of, the, of, the, of this whole episode is that the British people, you and I, and all our grandparents and great-grandparents and so on, learn that slavish loyalty to alliances can mean slavish loyalty to the misjudgments of others. And again, I scarcely have to make the clear allusion to events just a little over a decade ago. In terms of Gray as a, a man, uh, let me offer just some uh, detail here. Uh, I also enjoyed reading uh, Margot Asper's diary uh, in the original at the Bodleian. Her reflections on Gray are intriguing. At one point, quite late in, during the crisis, she says, I looked at his profile. There is something of an undeveloped schoolboy about him. Uh, now remember, he is a man without foreign languages. He is a man, says... A foreign uh, secretary with no foreign languages. Right, exactly. Uh, he is uh, a man whom uh, Nye Williams, the uh, Welsh international, says is putty in the hands of his advisers. Uh, he is a man, in the end, I think embarrassed by the fact that there are no other people in the Foreign Office willing to give that kite a fly on Saturday the 1st of August other than William Tyrrell. All others are aghast that uh, Gray is not going to be utterly beholden to Russia and to France. So uh, my overall estimate of him, a man without drive or imagination, overwhelmed by the crisis, a man whom at the beginning of the crisis puts to the cabinet his belief, we can resolve this by a policy of deliberate ambiguity. It fails utterly. Compared with the foreign policy of Lord Grenville and Gladstone in 1870, who do, as you know, successfully organise uh, separate treaties with Prussia and France. They don't rely on 1839 in 1870. Separate treaties threatening war against anyone who attacks Belgian neutrality. That's what happened in 1870. Uh, that diplomacy was a triumph. Gray's diplomacy is ham-fisted, brief telegrams to Paris and Berlin. Will you please assure us you will respect Belgian neutrality? Those telegrams on Friday. There is no diplomacy all negotiation on the issue is shunned. Well, it's interesting when you describe Gray as someone who's out of his depth. I mean, he's, it sounds very much like Admiral Tirpitz, the, the, the Grand Admiral of the German Navy, his description of Bet von Holbeck, the German Chancellor. He says, during the July crisis, Bet von Holbeck, whom I observed from very, at very close quarters, 
reminded me of a drowning man. I think there are lots of drowning men. Yes. Um, not just in London, but right across Europe in yes. 1914. Yes. Um, I, actually, you know, I, I had various questions, but I think we, we, we've got about 20 minutes left. I think it might be time now to open the floor. Right. I just wanted to say, if you read Gray's memoirs, he was a fisherman. Yes. He fished on the test. He fished in a very beautiful part of Britain. Yes. And uh, that was about the limit of his imagination, I think. Can, can, I, can I comment on the fishing? Do you, yes. do you want to say something about the fishing? No. After, over, over to you. Well, well there's a very, I'm very glad you mentioned his fishing because he wrote a wonderful book about fly fishing, actually, which all fly fisher people read. And it's, and, and it's not no longer an entirely masculine preoccupation. And um, in this book, he says the, the successful fly fisherman has to be not there because if he's there, the fish won't be there. So he must um, be not there when he's fishing. It's just the lure and the fish. And the, the, the fisherman is not there until the strike, until the trout takes the fly. And then, once he feels the weight of the fish, then, of course, he springs into action. And I think that's basically the rule book he is following in, in the July crisis of 1914. The Germans were the trout. Well said. <laughs> who Next. were the four ministers who resigned on the 2nd of August and what happened to them? Ah, okay. I go into this in some detail. On, on Sunday evening, Burns uh, and Simon, yeah, some people, that is the... Uh, the independently-minded liberal who the former trade union hero of the great strikes, John Burns, resigns. He resigns in the afternoon. As soon as the cabinet says, yes, we are going to let Gray give a promise of naval support to France, Burns says, that's it. You are now acting like an ally. The mask of Entente Cordiale has fallen. You are provoking a direct declaration of war from Germany. I'm out of here. But in the evening, much more importantly... Our ambitious Attorney General, touted as a future leader of the party, is also torn up. He says that is a decision for war and, amazingly, Gray is insisting we not tell the Germans until he stands in the House of Commons tomorrow. And yet people are saying this is justified as a warning to Germany. I do not believe we should enter the war, therefore I tender my resignation. The, uh, the following day, uh, overnight... Morley's arrives, so the most senior liberal who had been a member of Gladstone's cabinet, who had warned throughout the crisis that we are winking here at Russian aggrandizement in Eastern Europe. He thinks about it until breakfast on Monday morning and then sends in his resignation. At the cabinet meeting itself, Earl Beecham, again, second most powerful liberal in the Lords, also passes over his resignation. Now, by Monday morning then, 3rd of August, four cabinet ministers. By the afternoon, another junior minister will join them, Charlie Trevelyan. Okay, what happened to them? Now, we know that Asquith went very hard during the evening of the 3rd of August on Simon and appears to have given him an indication that if he loved his country and he loved his party, he should return. He is the most promising. Uh, he has a future ahead of him. And he would undertake to protect his career by protecting his reservations. Simon says, OK, without withdrawing any of my objections to the policy, I then agree to come back. Burns resists all those seductions. And on the morning of the 4th of August, Beecham also comes back. 
So in the end, it is two honest Johns, Morley and Burns, who stand out. The other two come back. Let me stress something. Asquith does not say to them on the morning of uh, the 4th of August, we have information of an ultimatum to Belgium, and now the Germans are invading Belgium. You must come back, for surely we are now in the right and the Germans are in the wrong. He doesn't do that, because he knows that is not why these men have resigned. They have resigned against the whole course of British foreign policy for some years, which has now led to servile, abject, low bow toward Russian and uh, French diplomacy. Thank you. Um, just wanted to pick up uh, three points, if you don't mind my just yep. reciting them. Belgian neutrality, mm -hmm. even Churchill was willing to acknowledge that if the Germans simply marched through the south of Belgium in order to yes. get to France, it would not be a sufficient case to spell I. Yes. And the Netherlands, which was also a signatory to the 1839 treaty, yes. didn't declare war, in fact stayed neutral. Yes. and was blockaded by Britain through the war and then gave yes. refuge to the Kaiser at the end of the war. Yes. So that couldn't have been a sufficient reason to go to war. In fact, Gray didn't mention Belgium for the first hour of his speech yes, true, uh, in true. the House of Commons. Second thing is the, the secret diplomacy that Gray and Aircrow and Co. were doing yes. included uh, the guarantee to the French to protect Channel ports yes. if the French concentrated their forces in the Mediterranean. Yes. But it was when uh, Crystal Clark brings this out very well in Sleepwalkers, when George Lloyd, the Tory backbencher, is briefed by Cambon mm. as to this secret undertaking mm. and gets together the Tory backbenchers, uh, it, it became clear at that point that if the Liberal cabinet did split openly, over the war and failed to join, uh, the Tories would simply replace the uh, yes. Simon, Burns, uh, mm. etc. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons why the, the resignations were sotto voce mm. was because they wanted at least to keep a Liberal cabinet in place. Yes. The third thing that was also going on without the cabinet knowing was Henry Wilson was conducting detailed negotiations with the French Yes. about how to deploy the British expeditionary force. Mm. And that was going on all the way through, again, completely secret. I'm not sure even Gray knew that much about it. Yeah. But one of the reasons why Wilson would have wanted to do that was the Irish crisis. And, to, you know, the great thing for Wilson about August 1914 is it put Ireland on the back burner for at least two more years. Yes. And as, uh, again, Christopher points out in his book, for the first month of the crisis, um, Serbia was never even discussed. It was entirely <laughs> devoted. Every cabinet meeting was devoted yes. to the potential rebellion in Ireland. Yes. So you do begin to see how these different bits of policy coalesced with the incipient yes. anti-Germanism yes. uh, to push them where they came to in, in, on August yes. 3rd, 4th. I agree. Can, can I attack those in, in reverse order? Uh, most certainly Henry Wilson is a figure of tremendous importance, so a, a passionate enthusiast for the continental commitment, the famous uh, stacked CID meeting in uh, 1911, and of course he's also a key player during this crisis itself. I have a chapter in my book which I borrow from a, uh, called Pogrom. I borrow the word from uh, Amory's diary, 
for Henry Wilson uses this word shamelessly, think of this, uh, to describe an orchestrated movement to whip the people into a frenzy within the Tory party to put pressure on the Liberals. Let's organize a pogrom. So you're perfectly correct. And this from July 31, the evening, and people you've mentioned, Amory, uh, Maxi, some people in the Foreign Service too, lend a hand. I list them all in my book. Uh, and of course, they have connections to the French Embassy, George Lloyd, whom you mentioned. Most certainly, Henry Wilson, a key player, continental commitment aimed at Germany and to satisfy the French. And p plays into the Irish thing too. He's an Ulsterman. And I noted how the former French military attaché writes to him and says, you as an Ulsterman can, uh, must understand, this will really help. This will put the Irish thing in the shade for you. Let me come to the, the uh, naval deal. It's really controversial, the fact that in the middle of 1912, uh, uh, Churchill organises the naval agreement with the French, just as you put it. Uh, we will cover the North Sea if the French cover the Mediterranean. Now, it's this naval deal that the, alerts the radicals in the cabinet to the danger of a presumption that Britain will be going to war. That is what produced the famous letters exchanged in November 1912. And again, quite shamelessly, Gray then uses these in his speech to say, clearly, there is a moral obligation. These letters I exchanged with the French ambassador, I said there wasn't an obligation, but let every man look into his own heart and construe the obligation for himself. Meaning, I feel obligated, don't you? It's a matter of honour, it arises from the fact that we can't let the French down, though this was precisely denied in 1912. And your first point, of course, about Belgium, it's absolutely clear the war for Belgium is a shiny half-truth. And I have to say there's much hypocrisy about what is said by the British about Belgium. Uh, Nicholas Lambert's new book, uh, Planning Armageddon, makes it absolutely clear that from 1912 in the Dessart Committee, the key British players on a score of occasions and in the CID all say, and if it comes to war, Belgium's neutrality and Holland's neutrality are impossible. Indeed, we could not tolerate it. Belgium must be either friendly to us or hostile, for otherwise we shall not be able to cork the bottle, meaning the starvation of Germany, the strangulation of her commercial enterprise. These things will depend on trespassing on neutral rights, yeah, uh, in backing away from the uh, Declaration of London that leaned toward neutral rights in shipping and trading and commerce. Yeah, we are going to dump neutral rights as soon as the war begins and put Holland and uh, Belgium under great pressure. And indeed, I describe in my book that uh, literally an hour into this war, Churchill is arguing, of course, we have to ride roughshod over Dutch neutrality. They cannot be permitted to keep supplying Germany with neutral trade across the Atlantic. And as the orders in council unfold in late 1914, early 1915, Britain treads all over international law, all over neutral rights with a distant blockade. How difficult it is to hear people talking about, therefore, this is a war for the right of a neutral Belgium. Belgium is the victim of both rival alliance systems. I was just going to add that the great Belgian historian, and sadly now dead, Jean Stengers, made the point that the Germans made a grievous error in offering uh, Brussels an ultimatum. If the Germans had simply gone through Belgium to the south of the Sombre Meuse, the Sombre Meuse rivers, 
then according to the discussions of the, the British cabinet, there would not have been, the causes Billy would not have arisen. But it was the fact that they presented Brussels with a principled, with, a, with an ultimatum that required from Brussels a principled reply. And the Belgian reply is one of the most moving, one of the most stirring documents of the July crisis, where Belgium says, you know, we can't possibly give in to this force majeure. We have a, a, a duty not only to our own tradition, to our own honor, but to the honor of Europe. Um, the Germans made an absolutely enormous psychological and tactical blunder in doing that. And that was uh, the, the view of saying, yes, we have a question here. Was well, there not also another strand to this in the antagonism towards uh, Germany's desire to have an empire, to expand itself, become a competitor yes. in the uh, empire game? Yes, most certainly. I think the, the larger forces at work uh, explain much more about the war, and of course they explain how protracted the war is, this, the, the vastness of it. Um, in, in that sense, Belgium just cannot explain it. And yet, you know, there are, there are signs uh, of hope. Louis Harcourt, who, whom I, I use his cabinet journal a lot in my book, he of course was caught up in intense negotiations in uh, 1913 and 14 um, with Germany towards some reconciliation and some bargain on the future of Portuguese colonies. So it, it was possible that there could be a diplomatic solution to this imperial rivalry. Uh, but imperial rivalry, commercial rivalry, naval rivalry, tensions with Germany, it's certainly a, a part of the story, absolutely true. Um, under the uh, British cabinet system, um, each key cabinet ministers are, are expected to articulate <clears throat> the general view and opinion within the sector that they're responsible for. Yes. Now, somewhere, I think it must be in the war memoirs, David Lloyd George talks about, he's trying to refute the Marxist or Leninist mm. interpretation of the war, yeah. says the capital was in a total funk, and he's, he's refer, referring to the panic in the city and, uh, yeah. and, and all the rest of that, and clearly he articulated that yeah. at some point. Was there ever, sadly I haven't got to your book yet, yeah. Uh, was there ever a serious possibility that David Lloyd George would have come out against the war? Because that, I, in my judgment, would have been absolutely decisive. Well, it's intriguing. Um, again, I'm looking at uh, Harcourt's papers pretty much, but also Ponsonby, Trevelyan and others. When Harcourt lists those he believes are in the peace party, and on Monday 27 July he thinks it's certainly 11, maybe 13, a couple of days later, 9, and so on, he never lists Lloyd George. Lloyd George, uh, I think, the, from the radical position, they regard him as suspect. Uh, and, of course, it's the Mansion House speech in 1911. And from that point, they regard him as part of the party of the wind. And yet, during this crisis, he undertakes to go with Harcourt to see Asquith. Uh, I think it's the morning of the 3rd of August as a representative of the... Uh, non-interventionist majority of the cabinet. So he was certainly capable of associating with them. Uh, he went to Halkin House, uh, Beecham's address, on, on the um, afternoon of Sunday 2nd of August. And uh, according to Morley, and on our way, all of the discussion was along the lines of, Burns was right. We should have all resigned. We should have never let Gray give that language to Combon, this promise of naval support. So a weathercock, uh, all over the place. I think it depended who'd been in his ear most recently, uh, whether it's C.P. Scott or uh, Welsh radicals uh, like Nye Williams uh, or Francis Stevenson wondering about his masculinity. 
Um, that too is part of the story. I mean, uh, Chris and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, I think it is true that uh, you can imagine the name calling that is coming. You know, I am clearly a weak man who is coddling the pacifist position, who is suggesting that war was avoidable because I can't look facts in the face, and so on. You know how these uh, uh, labels are deployed. Weak, strong, sentimentalist versus realist. I suggest to you, can there be any stronger sentimentalism than hatred? And hatred drives war. It is realist to say, stand back, think what you are doing, think what you are unleashing. So, um, in both Sleepwalkers and uh, I think I and I, I assume from what you've been saying in the darkest days as well, um, we get a lot of this uh, idea that um, the Foreign Office hijacks hijacks the agenda. We have ambassadors and we have foreign ministers essentially going off on their own and um, signing people up to various to various commitments and taking this very 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 hawkish stance throughout. What doesn't seem to come across is why they do this. I mean, with the sort of, I suppose, the, the right-wing view of um, why Germany got into it, that there was militarism, that there was this military faction, that kind of, that, that's kind of obvious. I mean, military is like a bigger military, and for a bigger military, you need to be warlike. But with a foreign office, you almost, see, you almost think, actually, negotiation, carrying on with the negotiation, gives them more power. Why were these foreign office actors, and I'm thinking, um, especially in France, possibly more than England, mm. why do you think that they, they were so hawkish and why do you think that they were so mm. aggressive um, toward, towards each other? At, at one point uh, in his correspondence, I think with, uh, with Chirol, the former foreign uh, uh, correspondent in, in the Times, um, Lord Harding is quoted uh, as saying that uh, the Nicholson School in the Foreign Office now dominates utterly, and uh, Frank Lascelles is being squeezed out. Uh, those who are aware of the German menace now dominate. George Buchanan is uh, clearly uh, schooled in this by Nicholson, um, and a number of others could be noted too. An exception in the crisis is Bertie, Francis Bertie in, in Paris. It is Bertie who warns at the beginning that what we should be doing is putting pressure on Russia for it would be absurd for Russia to pose as the hero of the Slavic peoples mm -hmm. and get us all into some bloodbath in order to uh, satisfy her vanity. Uh, this is Lord Bertie. Yeah. Um, and Surprisingly this printed, sensible. Yes. Printed in his diary after the war. It's there, published, you know. Um, now, uh, why the diplomats are overridden? I mean, why? why uh, I mean, uh, I'm reminded of uh, Keith Wilson's book, uh, Forging the Collective Memory. Um, his article on the imbalance in British documents. Remember that Gooch and Temperley, that great big fat volume of all the British documents on the origin of the war, is entirely composed of foreign office documents. When uh, Nicholas uh, Dombrain, I think, uh, was writing his book and relying on war office papers, he says in the preface there, and while I was there, the war office stuff was being weeded, vast heaps of it being taken away. But it's, it's true, we don't know enough about the Admiralty and the War Office papers um, to, to fully answer, answer the question. But on, in a general terms, I would say the Foreign Office is driven by fear and easily spooked. And I suggest to you it is fear of abandonment that is a critical factor uh, driving this crisis. And by that I mean if we do not satisfy the Russians, 
if we do not satisfy the French, the acid test, as Buchanan is writing back, of our affection and loyalty, how on earth shall we defend the British Empire? And this is one of the themes I think Keith Wilson has brought to us. That latest book of his is called The Limits of Eurocentricity arguing that it's in the aftermath of these events that we look at them and say, gosh, here we have all these prescient people looking forward and saying, aha, the German menace is the key. He's saying, no, no, that is wisdom after the event. The uh, 1904 deal with France, the 1907 deal with Russia, both thieves suppers, really, you know. So to a certain extent, I think it is an awareness that this gigantic British empire is indefensible. Uh, in, the, in the context of rising other powers, uh, indefensible. Therefore, we must do deals. Uh, to avoid turf wars, we do turf deals. We do them, we keep our enemies closer, if you like, you know the old saying. Um, so I think in part driven by fear of abandonment. Could I just add to that? that this, I think this is absolutely right, that you know, and, and Britain's not alone here, that all these great powers have more than one enemy in view. And one of the problems with the, uh, some of the literature on 1914 has been that it's been written backwards from the perspective of the war that actually broke out between 1914 and 1918. But actually, you know, someone like Nicholson, for example, was not shy about saying, you know, we have to um, fight the Germans so that we don't fight the Russians because we can beat the Germans, whereas we can't beat the Russians, which is true. I mean, the Russians could have sent a vast land army into northern India. The British had nothing to offer against that sort of threat. Whereas, of course, in their home waters, they still had the, the invincible shield of the Navy. So, um, yeah. I say somewhere that my book is a shamelessly a top-down study for men at the top launch wars. And so most certainly, I believe in uh, human agency. And in part, I believe that uh, uh, because I believe in peace. That is, that at a dozen different points in this story, uh, different choices made by different diplomats, military advisers, politicians and feeble-minded monarchs, might have avoided the war. So in that sense, yes, human agency matters. But I don't think human agency is absolutely critical in determining who is to blame, who is guilty, who is responsible. Nor do I think it explains the bloodbath, the immensity of this, 17.8 million people. Um, it's a little bit like, like searching for the Boy Scout who drops the match. When we have agreed that all Boy Scouts are happy to play in hayricks and soak them with kerosene as part of a game, now, in that sense, it's the combustible material all around us that I think uh, explains the huge bonfire that, that results. So the poison in men's minds and women's minds too, the role of the press, the opinion makers and so on. So in that sense, I lean toward uh, the larger forces at work. I certainly believe it tells us much more about the crisis than 11th hour causes or guilty men. I don't believe in the one true cause. I don't believe in all roads lead to Berlin. I, I, I cannot bring myself to believe that there must be some knockdown truth, some first-class lie, as Gray described it, even as late as 1916, that if only we could discover in a document somewhere would indict the Germans for starting the war and therefore well-deserving of the starvation they got and the death of two million men. In that sense... I lean toward the combustible material. Well, I, I, we, I'd love, there are clearly going to be many more questions, and there are, there's going to be a very lively debate around this book. This book is going to stir controversy. There's no question about that, and we have only to wait for the Jingo School to mount their, their, their assaults. Um, but um, this is an absolutely fascinating book. I recommend it to, you all, to all of you. And um, 
Of course, it's available to buy tonight at a ridiculously reasonable price here at the LRB Bookshop. So um, with that, I'd like to thank Douglas Newton for um, helping us to understand his wonderful new book and to thank you all for coming tonight and contributing to the occasion with your questions. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.